Hebrews chapter 4. Message is entitled, Saving Faith. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher, that it might be your message that's communicated, that your word that is sharper than a two-edged sword, your word that is the gospel, that is powerful seed, that goes down into the soil of one's heart and brings forth eternal life. Lord, I pray for all of us that we might be spirit-filled listeners. Lord, as believers that we might understand how powerful the word is and how urgent the need is for people to hear the gospel. And Lord, I pray for hearts today, Lord, that if there are some here that do not know you as Savior, or that they would see their need of saving faith and come to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Saving faith. Verses 1 and 2, we see the fact of saving faith. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. Every time you see a therefore, you go before and see why did he put therefore. Well, the last verse in chapter 3 says, So we see that they were not able to enter into that rest because of unbelief. They were a part of the nation of Israel. We read Psalm 95. They were a part of the nation of Israel. They enjoyed the blessings of God taking care of his people. But it's not enough to be born into a family that's believers. You also have to make a personal decision. A personal decision. Then he says, let us fear. Why? Because the need is urgent. The need is urgent. In James the last chapter of James is instruction given to believers, but it says this, go to you that think or that say, we're going to go here or there and do some business and get some gain when you don't know what's coming tomorrow. For what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time then vanishes away. And the only hope that anyone has of salvation is in this life. After you die, it's too late. In the book of Luke, chapter 17, when we talk about the, or 16, we talk about the rich man. Lazarus was a believer, and he didn't have much in this life, but he had the Lord. And the Bible says the angels came and they carried him when he died to Abraham's bosom, heaven. And the Bible says the rich man died, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. There's no in between. The Bible doesn't talk about an in between, another opportunity. And how many people? They hear the gospel, they say, well, yeah, that sounds good to me. Let me think about it a while, but you don't know what's coming tomorrow. And if you die in your sin without Christ, there's no hope for all eternity. The companies make a lot of money today selling life insurance, don't they? And they're betting that you die a long time away, but you bet against yourself and you say, well, but I might die before that. But there's no company selling life assurance because we don't know what's coming tomorrow. An accident takes you away like this. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. 
This is a place of urgency. Let us fear. There is a promise as long as you're living and breathing, you have the opportunity to receive Christ. In a church this size, no doubt there's a mixed multitude. I don't know hearts. We say that all the time. We don't know hearts, but God does. And you know what? You know. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, nobody knows the heart of a man but the man himself and God. You know where you stand. The need is urgent. And he's speaking to the believers, let us fear that any one of us might come short of it. Anyone in the congregation, we ought to be praying for one another. The second verse says, for indeed, we had good news preached to us just as they did in the Old Testament. They had good news. At some point, Moses, the great leader of the Hebrew people, submitted his life by faith to the God of Abraham. There are many that went along, but at some point when the journey got hard, they rebelled. They'd seen God work over and over and over. Maybe you think, well, if, if maybe if God just showed a miracle to my friend. There's nothing more powerful to bring your friend to Christ than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You look at the example in the Old Testament. These people saw waters parted. They saw a big wall come between them and the Egyptians until the next day God opened the Red Sea. And they got to the other side and they danced and they sang and they worshiped God. But most of them, their hearts were not right with God. It said there at the last we read in Psalm 95, they erred in their way because they didn't know God and they didn't know God's ways. They enjoyed God's blessings. In Luke, in our small groups, uh, some of us are studying the life of Christ in Luke. And as Christ is coming back down, he's, he's gone away from Jerusalem and he's joined the pilgrims and he's, he's coming back down for that last Passover where he's going to present himself as the, as the king. They're going to reject him. He's going to die on the cross as our savior. And he comes through a town and there's 11 lepers there. And they say, let's go out. No, I'm sorry, 10 lepers. 10 lepers come out and they say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. They recognize him to be a miracle worker. And he has mercy on them and he heals them. And only one comes back to worship, a Samaritan. And Jesus is even amazed by that. You see his humanness in that. He said, we're not 10 that were healed and only one has come back to worship? Some people are holding on to some blessing in their life and they say, well, I remember there's a time when God saved me from a situation. Maybe some people prayed for you and you're healed of cancer. That is no guarantee of your salvation. No guarantee. You may have been saved from death in an accident. In Romans chapter 1, I think it's verse, chapter 2 and verse 6. When you enjoy the blessings of God, 
The rain comes on the righteous and the unrighteous. You enjoy the blessings of God, and yet you don't submit to God? The writer of Paul the Apostle says, don't you know, man, that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? But if you don't repent, what happens? The next verse says, you're just storing up wrath until the day of wrath. You'll stand before God, and you'll say, but God, you did this for me. And God says, yeah, I did. But you never repented. You never submitted. It says we need to be afraid in verse 1. We read that. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Because we as believers know what's coming. There's only one hope, and that's Jesus Christ. And to be absent the body for the believers, to be present with the Lord, to be absent the body as an unbeliever, is to be present in hell for all eternity. Lost. With your mind, remembering the opportunities that you had maybe on this Sunday when you were sitting here, and the gospel going forward, and you said, you know, I need to make a decision about this, but let me think about it some more. So you're trying to scare me? No, no. I, if I could scare you into heaven, I'd, I'd, I'd man, I, we'd have horror films here. I know I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can. And what he uses is the truth of the Word of God to remind you that life is just this long. You don't have to live very long. You get out of high school. I remember it being in, in, in grade school and wanted to play junior high football over in Wheatland, be a bullpup, you know, because the seniors were bulldogs. Couldn't hardly wait to get there. And then I thought, oh. Just to be in high school. I don't know if I can make it in high school. They have to learn typing. We had typing in those days, right? Now we have keyboarding. I don't know if I can learn that. That's tough. And the math, oh, I don't know if I can make it, but oh, I want to be there. And all of a sudden, whew, it's just gone. All my kids are done with high school, and almost all of them done with college. Life goes so quickly. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter has this tremendous call for salvation. He's writing to these people that he's written to before, that he's spoken to before. He loves them. He's reminded them over and over. And he says, for by these things Christ has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. For this very reason... Apply all diligence in your faith. In your faith, supply moral excellence, and your moral excellence, knowledge, and your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That if you're in Christ, you're going to be growing. You have to quench the Holy Spirit not to grow. Because his life is in you. When a baby comes into this world and all things are normal, they're hungry and they grow. And you can't believe how fast they grow, especially as a pastor here. I see babies coming in buckets, you know, baby buckets. And the next thing, they've joined the kid gang and they're doing laps around the auditorium after church while we fellowship. I said, Where did that one learn to talk, walk? And he is running. 
It happens so quickly, but we expect that because that's the nature of life. And Peter's saying the same thing. If you're in Christ, you're going to be growing. You're going to have certain desires because you have the life, the spiritual DNA of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and establish the truth which is present with you. Make sure your election in Christ He's speaking to those that he shared with who have made decisions and make sure you're saved. There's no more important decision in your life. Don't be distracted by busyness. Jesus gave those illustrations when the gospel seed goes out. And some falls on the roadside and the birds pick it up and they never think about it again. And some falls on the stony ground. And at first there's a reaction, there's the decision, but then there's opposition that comes to their life, they forget it. And they, they turn away from it. And then there's, there's those, they're not offended by the word. They just get busy. And they've heard the word, but the cares of this world are like thorns and weeds that grow up. The cares of this world and being busy and just have other things to think about. And the word is choked out by the busyness of life. He said the problem was there in verse 2 is that the word was never united by faith. Now here's a question. In your life, is faith a noun or a verb? Is it a noun or a verb? What do you mean by that, Pastor? When you think about faith, maybe you think about Baptist faith or Catholic faith, and you describe the doctrines and they believe, and maybe it's, it's what your family's done for years, but it's, it's a kind of a way of life, and you describe it from the outside, or is faith a verb? Faith is your trust. It is your obedience. It is what you live out in your life. I was thinking of part of our uh, general orders when I was in the army. You had to memorize all those things in basic training. And I thought of a phrase, bearing true faith. What does it mean to bear true faith? Bearing true faith and allegiance is a matter of believing in and devoting yourself to something or someone. A loyal soldier is one who supports the leadership and stands up for fellow soldiers. He's a part of it. That's a good illustration of bearing true faith in the Christian life. It is your life. Everything else revolves around it. People say, well, you know, I know I should be in church. Why? Why should you be in church? Well, you know, it's just, you know, I should be in church. I know, I, I, but I just, I'm busy. I got other things. See, that's the thorns of this world. That's the weeds growing up. Well, I, you know, I, I like to be in small group, but it's not. The point is, we all do what we want to do. And if God has changed your want to, where do you want to be? Right in the center of his will, because your life, the life principle is that you might please God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Whether we're here in this body and absent from heaven or we're in heaven, we have this one principle. True believers for eternity have this one principle and that's to be pleasing to God. What pleases God? What pleases God is that I grow and become a clearer and clearer reflection of his grace and of his righteousness, of his holiness, and of his love for other people. 
Now, there's a process of sanctification going on, but God has placed that in you if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. You have the desire to please him, not other people. You can fool other people. And sometimes culturally, maybe the people around you are going to church, so you say, well, yeah, I should be going to church. Maybe you're growing up in a Christian home, and you know, you go to church. I mean, you don't really have an option, so you just go to church. But once you're on your own, Mom and dad are not there anymore. And guess what? You become who you are. So don't say at that point, well, you know, I kind of fell into some sin. No, you didn't fell. You ran headlong. You said theirs, and you made a big splash when you hit it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that's your heart. J. Vernon McGee, the old preacher with the great gravelly southern voice, used to say, in life, the sons of God are always passing the sons of Satan, going back to the original home. Some of the sons of Satan, they hang out in church for a while, but eventually they're going back to their home. They're going back to their mud hole. And sometimes the sons of God, the little lambs of Jesus might fall in the mud, but they can't stay there because it's not their nature, and they repent, and they go back to God. The, the righteous man falls down seven times, but he keeps getting up. Why? Is that because they're wonderful? No, it's because that's the life that God has placed in them. But maybe it's just your culture, your family culture. Well, we go to church on Sundays. But it has nothing to do with the rest of your life. God is not in all your thoughts that the children of Israel, the lost ones. Just something we do on Sunday. So we're family. We go to church. We go out to eat. We have family dinner. It's what we do. It's your culture, but it's not your heart to please God. That's the same there. It's not your life. In verses 3 through 11, we see the facts of unbelief. In verses 3 through 6, it says, Some failed because of disobedience. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And, well, that doesn't sound the same. No, he's using Psalm 95 as the illustration. We that have believed have entered in, but not everybody who's just a part of the culture entered in. Because God knows hearts. And he said, they're not going to have my rest with their heart like that. There has to be a change. There needs to be conviction of sin. There needs to be repentance. And that's only a gift that comes from God. They were a people that knew right from wrong. They knew the law and they thought because they know it, they were in. Because of their blood, they were in. But they failed because of disobedience. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rests in the seventh day from all his works. Because when God got done with creation, he said what? It is good. It was perfect. And then sin entered in. Again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of what? Disobedience. They knew the truth, but they refused it. Maybe they were thinking, listen, i got to sow my wild oats. Well, you know what happens when you sow wild oats? You reap wild oats. The Bible says you, you sow to the wind, what do you reap? You, weep, you reap the tornado. You say, well, I'll just go along. You don't know what the end of that is. Pilgrim's Progress has that sad picture 
that warning to Pilgrim before he steps out. He's come to Christ. The pastor has given him pictures to think about. He lets him talk to the man in the cage. The man in the cage has said, well, I'll have a little time, and let me just sow a little more to myself. And he got in sin, even though salvation was available in his mind, in his heart. He just said, there's no hope for me because I've sinned too far. And somehow his own conscience had condemned him, and he was on his way to hell. And he thought there was no hope. He had convinced himself there was no hope. And Pilgrim and the pastor could not talk him out of it. And the pastor says, can you understand this? This is a warning. A lot of Christians think, well, let me just continue in sin because after all, God loves grace to abound. He just let, no, you don't know that. And that's not your heart if you're a believer. Your heart is to please God, not to see how much you can get away with. Because listen to me, folks. It doesn't matter if you can fool me, you can fool the elders and the deacons and even your own parents or your family, your spouse. You're not going to fool God. You're not going to fool him. You know your heart and he knows your heart. Now, some people are fooling themselves. And they think they're going to come to God in that day and say, God, I was a part of this organization. We did a lot of good things. And we did a lot of wonderful works in your name. I, we even cast out devils. And Jesus will say saddest words in the Bible. The invitation to salvation in the Sermon on the Mount is a warning. And God says to me, I'll say to them in that day, Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Did they know about it? Yeah. But he didn't know you as part of his family. You're not part of my family. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And they'll cast them out to the lake of fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. Because of disobedience, they refused. They knew what was right, but they didn't want to admit they were wrong. They didn't want to repent, and so they turned their back on God. In verses 7 through 10, it says, You can miss your opportunity because of a hard heart. He again fixes a certain day. Today! saying through David, after so long a time, just as he said, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because you only have today to make a decision. You can't make a decision yesterday. How many people regret the decisions they made yesterday? They can't do anything about them. Those decisions are made. They're done. You can't make a decision tomorrow because you're not there, but today you can. Paul sends the same message to the Corinthians. There was so much sin, he, he gave up trying to figure out who was saved. He called them all saints, but he knew that some of them were just going along. Their hearts were hardened. Maybe they're going along because you're a product of missionary dating. You know, Your boyfriend, your girlfriend just said, well, I really can't date an unbeliever. Oh, okay, well, what's the big deal? What do we got to do? Because they're thinking you've got to become a Baptist or a Methodist or Presbyterian. You're just thinking, well, what's the big deal? I'll join a different church. Because they don't care. Just like the Canaanites, they lived in the land when, when they said to, to Jacob, and, and, and uh, Jacob's sons were wicked. It's amazing God used them to bring forth the Savior. But they said, you know, this guy has violated our scripture, our, our sister, and so let's tell him, well, listen, you just become one with us, and what you got to do is you got to get circumcised. And so the day they were the sorest, two or three days later, they showed up and killed all the men. Didn't tell their dad. And so they had to move after that because their name had become odious. 
It's not the right way to deal with transgressions. But those Canaanites just thought, well, okay, what's the big deal? We'll join your religion. And in their heart they said, and then we'll have our way with them. That's what the wicked Canaanites thought. We'll join their religion. And maybe you thought the same thing. You said, hey, somebody said church is a good place to get a girlfriend, get a boyfriend. And so you showed up. I've seen it go both ways. And so you came in and your spouse now was not being obedient. And just like other, a lot of churches, their greatest, uh, their greatest ability is, you know, that missionary dating program. Because they know if somebody's heart gets entwined and you fall in love, you're in there and they got you and you go to their church. And so you gave that, okay, I'll go to your church. What do I got to do? Well, you got to get baptized. You know, that, that big fat Greek wedding movie that came out. And so he joins the, the church. He didn't know what he was doing, but, you know, he went along. Brought a swimming pool in so they could immerse him because he was a big person. They were used to immersing babies. And he joins us. had nothing to do. Well, just go along. And so you've been going along. He said, you're okay. Hey, my whole family joined the church. Maybe it was older. Your, your folks got, came to Christ or your husband came to Christ and you were both and say that he came to Christ. So, well, well I'll go along with it. So as kids, you just went along with it. But you know your heart is not about pleasing God. You're not sure today if you stood before God, he'd say, well done, faithful child. I am so excited to see you. You're not sure about that. Listen, folks, God wants his children to be secure in his love. That's why he gave us these scriptures. That's why he gave us these things. Do you have life or not? Did you just go along and now your heart's hard because you've been going along long enough that, well, you know, I just got to maintain the story. God knows. You're not going to sneak by because you say, well, my husband's a Christian. My wife was a Christian. Well, my mom and dad, you know, they went all the time. You can miss. You can miss because you've grown up in church and you really don't have a fear of God. I remember teaching the kids out at Cathedral Home one time and I was ministering that passage from Romans chapter 3, verse 18. It goes through that list Paul does kind of an anatomy check of unbelievers. He said, under their lips is the poison of asps. Their feet are swift to run to evil. They just think about evil continually. And then he says the last one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that scared this one young man. He said, Paul, i got to talk to you. I said, no problem. Stay after. We'll talk. He said, you know what? I don't fear God, and that scares me. What had happened? He just got a fear of God. From what? The Word of God. The Word of God. But you've been going long enough. You've learned the language. You learn what people want to hear. And on Sunday, you can play a game. And when they're around, you can play a game. I grew up like that. I grew up in a home that was righteous, a home where I had good examples. And I could memorize Scripture with the best of them. I'm so thankful for that now. And I was afraid about going to hell, but there came a time in my life I had to decide, no, I'm going to really follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. This is going to be mine, not just my parents. Don't let hardness of heart turn you away. 
where you've just been used to doing something for so long, it's just the way you did, and you miss, you miss heaven. Verse 11, do you know what? You say, well, I'll work it out someday. But what about now in the lives of others? Look at verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What about your kids? What about the people that you know around you? So, well, I'm going to figure this out. I know. What about them? Do they have another choice? Do they have tomorrow? They're looking at you, dads, moms, guy on the job, lady in the office. They're looking at you. And they say, well, it's not that important, I guess. The Bible gives some really stern. It gets a little stronger as we get further into Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and following. Listen, if you go on willfully disobeying the gospel, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus is not going to do something else. He's done it all. He sat down. It's done. But if you think you could just trot underfoot the blood of Christ and count it as a common thing, hey, take it or leave it, you know. Everybody's got to do their own thing. And then one day you wake up and you say, i got to get serious about this. But in the meantime, your kids, those people that know you're following, and, and that was their opportunity. That's a warning, isn't it? Let us be diligent to enter the rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You may not follow Christ for your own good, but what about your kids? Are they going to have that shot? So you have the facts of unbelief. Entitlement. It's just written in there. Entitlement. You know, well, I'm my family. I was born in these people. say, so I'm a Jew. Of course God loves me. Of course I'm in. Hardness of heart. But here in verses 12 to 13, we see the facts of conviction. I love this. Verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and incense of the heart. Listen, you're, you don't fool God. But if you want to you leave something powerful with your unsaved loved ones, those people, those guys you're not sure about, they, they're coming to church, but you're not sure about them. You love them, and they're here once in a while, and your heart goes out to them. What do you leave them with? Leave them with the Word of God. Share your testimony, but leave them with the Word of God. Leave them the Word of God that made a difference in your life. Because there was a point. Talk to people all the time. Have you made that decision? Well, they say, I'm not like most people. It's a process for me. Well, so was being born. But we know you may not remember the day you were born, right? But we know you were born because you're here. Every year we celebrate that, right? Your birthday. And you not, may not remember the date, but the Bible, even the Old Testament says, come now, let us reason together. In Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. So that means what the Old Testament and New Testament agrees with is there's a time when you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. 
I realize I'm a lost sinner. And so if you're not sure because you've been saying that prayer because you're afraid, kneel it down. Go to the scripture and say, Lord, today, based upon your promised word, I give you my life. I'm lost in my sin. And I believe that your death on the cross, your shed blood for me, paid the debt of my sin. And Lord Jesus, I don't want to follow you because that was his invitation. If any man would come after me, let him what deny himself by confessing your need, not confessing your ability to be a Christian, not confessing your ability to be righteous, confessing your need as a believer. That's where salvation starts. And saying, Lord, I want to follow you. You be the Lord of my life. How do you know if he's the Lord of your life? Because his word is important. His word is law to you. There's a hunger in your heart for the word of God. And when you hear it, you go, oh, I need more of that. The word of God is sharp and powerful. And you share the word of God with people. Like Hebrews 9, 28, it's appointed a man wants to die after this judgment. God knows the day. You don't. But God does. Satan doesn't know the day of your death. He'll lie to you. And he'll tell you you got a lot of time. But he's a no. God knows the day. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes that all your days are numbered. God knows exactly. For you as a believer, what great hope. You ought to have great courage. You're not going to change that. You might as well live fearlessly. It's the word of God is powerful. It's a sharp sword. Verse 13, the spirit of God. God judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open, laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows that deep, dark sin that you're afraid of, that if you confess that everybody would know. And Satan wants you to be afraid of everybody knowing. And so he gives that in your heart. If you tell people, they're going to judge you. I've had folks say, if I really share my testimony, and there was a day in, in the past where we had the chief of police, different guys who moved away and retired now, but chief of police in our church, and he says, if I share my testimony, he'll take me to jail. I said, no, he's a believer. He's not going to take you to jail. But if you have to go to jail and you're a believer, you've got a whole new ministry. Start your jail ministry. And Satan says, oh, don't go there. Listen, you just wait a while. You'll feel better about your sin later if you just wait about a while. And he lies to you and that sin and that bitterness destroys your life. The Spirit of God sees everything. You can fool us. You will not fool God and you're not fooling him today. Romans 2.16 says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of man through Christ Jesus. If you wait and refuse Jesus, one day your life's going to be up there on the screen and the whole world's going to see it. He's going to judge the secret things. Or do you want it to be under the blood? The great promise of the Old Testament is that when you come to God, he, he buries your sin in the deepest sea. 
He removes it as far as the east is from the west. Listen to this. God says, and God remembers it no more. What a promise. Don't be afraid. And that's the difference between Christians and, and non-believers. Non-believers are like the Pharisees. They're always, you know, covering things up, broadening their, the borders of their robe, putting on religious garb, and justifying themselves and comparing them to one another and saying, I, I'm better than them at least in their mind. The believer's not ashamed because Jesus paid it all. And when you receive Jesus, he gives you the record of Christ's righteousness, not your own. It's not a clean slate. You're going to mess that up. Clean slate, you're not going to make it on because you still have the flesh. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. What a promise. That when the Father looks at you, what does he see? Christ's record. That's nothing to be afraid of. Come sinners poor and needy. Come to the cross. The old gospel song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. In verses 14 through 16, the facts about our powerful Savior. Verse 14, his work of salvation is finished. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. His work is done. He's seated at the right hand of God. The veil has been rent in two. He's made the way possible. As Dr. Bookman told us, and I love this picture, on the mercy seat, you have in the, 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 the Ark of the... the, the uh, yeah, the Ark of the Covenant there is the law. And the law reminds the God who's above that he needs to judge sin. And there we are in the middle. But the middle is called the mercy seat. And the old gospel song says Jesus interposed his precious blood. His work is finished. He's done all that he's going to do for you. It's been paid. You don't have to earn off your salvation by feeling guilty or doing some works, you can't do it because your works are nothing more than filthy rags compared to the works of Jesus Christ. Filthy, leprous rags. You can't earn it. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. There's the facts about Jesus. One day he's going to be the judge, but now he's the sympathizing Savior. He's gone through every temptation. In, in seminary, we had this example in our Strong's theology. And that was the question, because some people think, well, Jesus never surrendered to sin, therefore he doesn't really know what my temptation is like. And they use the illustration, it's an old illustration of two lighthouses. And a great storm comes and the lighthouses are there. And the question is posed, which lighthouse endures more of the storm? The one that's crushed or the one that stands? Which one endured more of the storm? The one that stood. Jesus never surrendered to temptation. 
And yet he knows every temptation that you've had, every failure. He knows the pain because he took the sin of the world upon him. He became sin who knew no sin. He's a sympathizing Savior. He's surrounded by people that wanted to keep up a good appearance, but one day they came to him and they, he didn't, they didn't find a person. Even those priests, some of the priests came to know Christ after they persecuted him, after they rejected him later. They come to Christ. His own brothers who rejected him later, they come to him. What did they find with Jesus? Oh, it's about time, right? No. They didn't find that. Who are you to come now because with all your phoniness, do you think I'm going to accept you? Of course he's going to accept you. Because he's a sympathetic, he's a merciful Savior. Last verse says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's a Savior that's ready and able to save. Believe you're in your sin. Maybe you're believing. You, you really trusted Christ as your Savior, but you've, you've stumbled. You fall and you think, well, I'm going to have to feel guilty for a while. No, no, no. The same faith that said if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just forgive us our sin is still available for you as a believer. It's the same faith. but it's a gift of God. We never earn God's grace. But Jesus is ready. He is able. He stands with open arms today. He says, come unto me, all you that are weak and heavy laden. Let me give you rest. Let me give you rest. You can get rid of that phoniness because you just went along because your boyfriend and you, you liked him or your, your girlfriend or or, or, or now you're married and you think, oh, I got to keep this up. Maybe I'll, no, 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 just give up. Give up and come to Jesus. Warren Wiersbe said this, we may enter into his rest by trusting his word and obeying his will. We can do this as we listen to his word, understand it, trust it, and obey it. Simple. Just give up and come to Jesus. Put your trust in him. Believe. Believe him. And faith will no longer be a noun. It'll be a verb. It'll be your life. Your trust every day will be in him. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, use it in our hearts. Lord, lose it, use it in the hearts of those that don't know you. Lord, they've been observing. They've had religion. They're ever learning, but they haven't come to the knowledge of the truth. And they have no power because they have no life. But Lord, you've promised as many as received you to, the, to them gave ye the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Lord, give them the faith. Give them that gift. Even this morning, turn the light on that they would understand who you are and you accept them if they will call on you. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.